Health and Fitness with David Hollywood in association with the Hearing Consultancy, thehearingconsultancy.ie. Hello and welcome to Health and Fitness. I'm David Hollywood and we're here this evening to talk about participation, education and on a difficult issue, maybe some deep consideration. On this week's show, we'll be talking about walking from darkness into light. You'll hear about the engineer who became an inter-county strength and conditioning coach. And right now we're going to talk about cancer screening and how the entire mechanism in Ireland is teetering on the precipice. Hope you're enjoying your Friday evening. We're heading straight into the first story on health and fitness this week. I think we all know uh, the case of Vicky Phelan, uh, who received an inaccurate cervical cancer smear test result. She campaigned to find out what happened and won an apology off the stage in 2018. Vicky continued to campaign a uh, and drive awareness about the issue around the state cervical check programme. She won a settlement of two and a half million euro from the state and after refusing to sign a non-disclosure form, uh, she opened the door for many more women to claim against their inaccurate results. Now the National Screening Service and the HSE face a potentially astronomical bill on public confidence in the systems on the floor. Can cancer screening in this country work again? How did it all come to this? Your views will be welcome, 0833010103. To answer these questions, though, uh, today I spoke to Cormac McQuinn, who's a political correspondent with the Irish Times, who's been covering this story. Your listeners will remember that uh, in 2018, uh, Limerick woman Vicky Phelan, who has very sadly since died of, of cervical cancer, uh, was was involved in a high court case uh, involving cervical check, the, the, the cancer screening service. There was a, a settlement and an apology for, for, for Ms. Phelan, and it exposed, I suppose, wider in, issues within the, the cervical cancer screening programme. It, it quickly emerged that more than 200 women were affected uh, in relation to smear tests carried out between 2008 and 2018. Um, it's, it's kind of a complicated issue, but it's, it's worth explaining what, what went wrong. Um, I mean, screening services, the HSC and, and the National Screening Service would be very much uh, insistence that there there are no um, there are no screening uh, services that will will one hundred percent detect a cancer. Um, you know, it's it's an indicative thing. It it's, it it will always require further tests. But but what happened was it emerged that uh, more than two hundred twenty women uh, who later went on to get cervical cancer had abnormalities detected in. In a subsequent review of previous smear tests that they had carried out during that period, that 2008 to 2018 period, that, that these had not been detected at the time of the screening. And there are also issues with uh, some of them um, not being told about the results of the internal cervical check audit, which had revealed the errors uh, in the reading of their smear tests. So that, that's the heart of the controversy uh, surrounding cervical check. Uh, and but in the five years since then, it, it, there, ha, there has been an escalation in the number of legal actions, uh, compensation claims taken against cervical check and, and the state for 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 what went on. Um, the earlier, earlier or just last month, the state claims agency, which deals with these kinds of cases, uh, confirmed to me that it, it had received three hundred four eighty four claims related to cervical check. Um, some some not 196 of them have been concluded, so that there may have been court settlements or court awards um, or um, discontinued claims among various reasons for why they'd be concluded. But there, 188 of the claims are still ongoing. And aside from that, 
there are also um, eight ongoing claims related to the, the breast, breast check screening service. So, you know, there's the, there, there has been the guts of, of 400 uh, claims made against uh, the National Screening Service over, over the last five years, I guess. And that, that is at the heart of concern about the, the, the potential threat to the future of cancer screening services. Um, because there's kind of a few different reasons for this, you know, um, and, and the reason it has come up in the last couple of months is that the new HSC uh, chief executive, Bernard Gloucester, Gloucester uh, was warned about, about this issue in briefing papers that were prepared for him uh, when he assumed the job there at the start of March. Mm. Uh, you know, it was, it was said to be one of the key challenges facing the, the National Screening Service, this, this legal environment, um, and it, that it risks the viability of current and future screening programs. Uh, one one reason is um, it, it kind of undermines public confidence in the screening programs, and it's 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 critical to achieve minimum uptake levels for screening programs so they they meet the aims and improve health outcomes for the population in general. Like it's you have to get a certain minimum threshold of people to go through the, the screening pro- programs to actually get a benefit on the on the other end in terms of of the indications that there, there may be a cancer there and that people can go on to get treatment if those minimum thresholds aren't met it it ca- calls into question the viability of continuing the program and okay. uh, one of the, the second uh, tricky issue then is is uh, getting staff to work in screening services the, the radiologists or the pathologists uh, in in a in an environment where they, where they risk getting sued in for for kind of work that's high volume of work, uh, you know it's it, it's perceived as a, a risky uh, job and and you know people doctors won't necessarily want to to get involved if if they're if they're at risk of litigation in, in kind of a high pressure environment to get to get things right and again to remind you it's 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 impossible to give one hundred percent. Uh, guarantees that you, you've caught any abnormal uh, readings in these tests, you know. So it's it's a very it's a it's a very very tricky job, and uh, recruitment of staff then has been a has been a, an issue as a result. Uh, so they're they're kind of the the issues at the, the heart of the concerns over um, the 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 future of the screening service as a result of the, the litigation that that has arisen in recent years. You paint um, a very clear picture there of the numerous issues that are at play and it's a, so dynamic. There's so many things involved here. Uh, just to go back to the question of uh, those who might not want to work within the screening services uh, for fear of litigation. Do you know, would they be personally liable if if, if somebody took uh, a claim against um, their 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 uh, smear results or, or their screening results? Um, is 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 there a chance that a doctor or a nurse involved would be personally liable? As I understand it, you know, it's it's the it would be the labs where they work or on their insurance companies that would end up pay, paying out any any settlements. Okay, um, but you know, it's it's still a, a stressful thing to to be at the center of litigation. And, no, it's not and an attractive job if, if, like if that's that. what your working you know, life is, is going to involve. You know, you you would be concerned for your reputation professionally. Um, you know, it, it's it's that these would so while while they may not personally uh, suffer financially for it, there are there are other reasons why they they may not want to take up a, a job in in an area in an area where where they risk litigation. And what kind of 
ballpark do you think we're talking about or what kind of ballpark does is the HSE concerned we're talking about in terms of the overall potential bill uh, for say outstanding claims um, that, that exist or you know because that's obviously a big part of um, the concern here is just how much money uh, historical claims can cost. Well you're, you're right I mean aside from the public confidence issue and the, the issue of recruiting doctors uh, actually the third the third reason why, the, why the, the services might be at risk is the cost of claims to the state. It, it, there, there may come a point where the, the cost of, of settlements outweighs the, the, the benefits that are delivered by the system in terms of potentially life-saving um, you know, indications of a, of a cancer diagnosis. And, and there, there would then at that point become a debate as to whether it was ethically right to continue funding the screening service or to redirect the funds somewhere else where there might be other opportunities to save lives. Um, I mean, there, it's, it's not known exactly how much the state may be liable for in terms of, in terms of the, the settlements. At the, at the moment, the labs are very much uh, shouldering the, the, the costs, um, you know, or their insurance companies. Sure. Um, the, the state has legal fees uh, that they pay, but there are concerns that, that, you know, that the state could end up paying considerable amounts of money on this. In 2020, there was a, an expert group that examined interval cancers. They, these are illnesses that arise between screening tests and the estimated liability to the state at that stage uh, could be in the range of, of tens of millions or, or hundreds of millions of euros. Now, that was at a time when there was, I, if I recall, about 185 uh, outstanding claims against the state at that stage. We, we've nearly 400 now at this point, albeit many of them concluded. Um, it, it remains to be seen if... The, the, those sort of scales of cost to the state will become a reality. Um, it, 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 may, it, may, it may be an issue in the future as, as at present, you know, a lot of the, the analysis of smear test uh, results is, is happening. It takes place overseas at overseas labs. Mm. Uh, a lot of that is being brought back to Ireland, though, uh, with the establishment of a, a new lab at the, the Coombe Hospital. So, I, you know, I'm aware that there is concern within the health service that once once Ireland starts conducting the analysis again in its own lab, uh, that, that at that point the state could become liable for any issues that arise into the future. So, you know, it's like three three kind of factors that, that call into question the future viability of national screening services programs. Um, and uh, there, there's a considerable amount of concern about it at present. We're going to take a breather. When we return, I'll ask Cormac if he thinks cancer screening is really under threat in this country. Health and Fitness with David Hollywoods with the Hearing Consultancy. Carrying out free hearing tests in Clara, Tillamore, Kinnegad and in our latest clinic at Mullingar Dental Clinic, Martins Lane, Mullingar. Thehearingconsultancy.ie We're talking about cancer screening and the damage that it's done and that's been done to it in Ireland. I'm speaking to the Irish Times' Cormac McQuinn about this and we're going to pick up the conversation uh, with the idea that what about the backlog of uh, potential cancer diagnoses that come from the pandemic and the restrictions that kept people uh, from getting screened in the first place? Uh, this is hardly the ideal context uh, for the cancer screening system to be under massive pressure now due to litigation. Well, this is it. I mean, it, there, there, it, it is undoubtedly the case over the last 25 years that the various cancer screening services in Ireland, the bowel cancer screening, cervical check, breast cancer screening, that it, it, ha- it has led to earlier diagnoses of cancer 
it has led to reduced levels of, of mortality. On simple terms, it has it has saved lives. I mean, there, there were, there's a highly respected public health doctor who who uh, did a report on the on the cervical check controversy, uh, Dr. Gabriel Scali. Now he he was highly critical of of the service in that in that report. You know, he, he talked about how it was doomed to fail at some point. Uh, you know, due to a a demonstrable deficit of clear governance and reporting lines between the services, the National Screening Service and HSE management. But, you know, the, the briefing paper for the new HSE boss, Bernard Gloucester, also uh, quotes uh, Dr. Scally in, in another report that he wrote, a, a progress report on the, the implementation of his inquiries recommendations, uh, which, which said that, that women can have confidence in and should take full advantage of the cervical screening program as it stands today. It has saved many lives and will continue to do so. So it, it is important that that people continue to get screening because, I mean, apart from anything else, it, it helps it helps ensure the viability of the service in the future if there is a minimum uptake. Um, there and, and aside from that, that life saving potential, the HSC has said it is taking actions to to try and reduce the risk posed by the, the legal environment. Um, you know, they, they accept people uh, who feel they've been harmed by the limitations of the screening service are entitled to seek recourse through the legal system. That's that's not disputed. It's The, the risk is that if the claims continue, the program may become unviable. Uh, but they, they have taken measures to, to kind of to help improve confidence. One one is the uh, implementation of, of testing uh, for HPV. That's the, the human, human pampiloma virus, paloma virus. Um, apologies for garbling the, the name there. Well, it was going to be but you or me, so I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, this is it. It's, it's said to be a, a more accurate uh, version of the testing than the previous cytology tests that is used. And the HSE believe there'll be uh, fewer legal claims over time as a result of, of this kind of testing producing false, fewer false negative test results. Uh, they, they've also instigated a, a public communication information strategy to, to increase understanding about screening, I suppose, the limitations of screening. And so as people are informed of that before they go for the, the screening tests, I, I know that the, the letter that women receive when they when they are told that it's time for their smear tests does talk about how the, the screening has limitations and that actually it's, it's very important to, to do it regularly mm. uh, because no screening is 100% accurate uh, so, but the more the more often a test is done the, the more higher chance of of finding abnormal cells that that would could it... be an indication of, of of cancer further down the line so i mean there, there are there are efforts ongoing within the health service to try and uh, limit the risk posed by by litigation and all of that but uh, it, it, the concern remains at the moment as as to whether whether or not the, the future service will be viable so what we're talking about here, just in terms of those claims, is that would it have been um, the claim environment wouldn't be as threatening had they been sending out these letters stating that uh, they're not 100% guarantees of, of, of effective results. Um, like that's something that wasn't being done previously. It's it's being done now. Sure. I mean, it's it, the, I, I, I've no doubt that there, there has always been some message about the, the limitations of screening, but but the, the goal, I think, is to create a greater understanding uh, among the population in general that, that no screening is 100% effective in terms of, of catching things that, that might, might prove troublesome down the road. Um, you Give know, them more the, legal the, protection there, there will, then in that instance be, as well, I suppose. There will always be failings in, in health services as well that, uh, that people will genuinely have 
um, reason to feel aggrieved by and reason to to take a case and be deserving of compensation as well. And I mean, the, the cervical tech controversy has very much proven that we we have seen any number of cases of of uh, women who have taken who have taken legal action and very very rightly so about the, the various failings in those in those scenarios and and have have uh, have have gotten compensation payments that they they very much deserve. So there, there's I suppose a balance to be struck. Here, you know, and it's a, it's a very sensitive issue for the health service to be dealing with. Uh, they 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 absolutely have to try and protect screening services um, that they that they believe does does save lives. But but you know, they, they, there is a, there is a, a moral moral obligation on the on the state to, to put its hands up when things have gone wrong as well, and to to adequately compensate people who who have been failed by the system. Um, you know okay. that's that's the the dilemma that that the, the health service is facing as as it seeks to uh, to protect the future of cancer screening services. So as we finish our conversation here on health and fitness, Cormac, the bottom line as things stand um, is that the HSE's policy um, is 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 going to be that screening cancer screening services will continue, and they're aiming to improve communication and around them, and the delivery of them, and the effectiveness of them, and um, and the concern about the future of screening um, is the both the uptake and the potential unknown financial damage that could still be coming down the tracks from historical claims. Sure. I mean, the cancer screening is continuing, will continue for the foreseeable future. There's no, there's no imminent threat to it. Uh, but, but what we have seen, you know, the concerns about, about the, the litigation have, have arisen over the last four or five years. There's still, the level of concern is still to the extent that it was one of the things on the the, the desk of uh, the new HSE chief executive on the day, first day he started the job. One of the things that that was flagged to him uh, directly by by health service officials, and you know from from my from my investigations of the matter, it, it's, it's a concern into the into the future as well. Um, it, you know, it, we 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 will see how it how it plays out. The ultimate cost of the state, but uh, mm. but yeah. The, Cancer, cancer screening services are are going to continue, but uh, but there is that that ongoing uh, risk to their to their viability. It's been uh, one of the most troubling and negative uh, stories around uh, health provision in Ireland for some time. And obviously it's not done yet. Uh, but uh, as you say, uh, hopefully the services uh, will take this information on board uh, from the last number of years and improve those services and ultimately improve health outcomes uh, for people in the state. Uh, Cormac McQuinn, political correspondent with The Irish Times. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us this evening. Thanks, David. Next up uh, this evening, we're going to hear from a man who engineers by day, trains elite hurlers in Westmeath by night. Health and Fitness with David Hollywoods in association with the Hearing Consultancy. Experiencing hearing difficulties? Book your free hearing test at one of our clinics in Kinnegad, Mullingar or Tullamore and get impartial advice on hearing aids, ear protection, tinnitus help and more. Thehearingconsultancy.ie Welcome back to Health and Fitness this Friday evening. Now, we're going to change gear slightly and uh, veer into a territory we've not really touched on since uh, we started uh, with this programme. We're going to the world of Gaelic Games, um, but we're going by way of an engineer, uh, which... Uh, is maybe an unusual one. Uh, I'm very glad to say that uh, we have the uh, Westmeath uh, Hurlers Strength and uh, Conditioning uh, coach, uh, Richie Flynn, is on the line. He's also, as I said, an engineer. And Richie, I suppose uh, we would love, first and foremost, to get um, the story behind your journey 
uh, you hold two very different hands of uh, of work in your life. I suppose the question is, how did you get into such elite sport training, ultimately from uh, an educational background of engineering? Yeah, uh, first of all, thanks for having me on, David. Um, yeah, look, I suppose um, I started out, I suppose, myself playing hurling very young age, played all, all up, to, up to a couple of years ago, almost fell into then a love of coaching as well. So I would have started coaching with um, the young team here in Ratnior. Uh, my own little man Ollie is playing there from about five years ago. Got interested, I suppose, then in, into the side of the athletic development, the youth athletic development. Uh, took a keen interest in that, reading up on it. Started fell onto a course then in, in Carlo IT. And uh, really, really, that was the start of it and took it from there. Um, really enjoyed uh, the SNC side of it, uh, along with the, the actual hurling coaching as well. Got involved with Wexford in her 20s then uh, for 20, 2020. Obviously, it was a COVID hit year. Spent a couple of years there with them and started with Westmeath in 2022 and then continued into this year. So, yeah, a bit of a strange uh, way of, of coming about it. But um, I suppose, yeah, my day job is in engineering. I work with a company, MCR Engineering, and do the S&C side of it and the coaching side of it as a hobby outside of that, yeah. I suppose uh, in one sense engineering is not too dissimilar from strength and conditioning in some way shape or form Uh, what kind of engineering do you do actually just before we move on yeah no the company is is, is MCR engineering part of the MCR group Uh, we do work in uh, industrial doors loading bays and stuff like that Uh, service and maintenance and new installs etc okay so by the sounds of it you've had to be very self-driven passionate about what you've been studying outside of your professional career that must be on the basis that you find it all very satisfying, satisfying to take the time out of your your free time, as it were, to keep learning and developing yourself. Yeah, hundred percent, David. Yeah, it, it, it's something I suppose that um, things are going well with the teams you're involved with. It's very satisfying, and then there's obviously bad days as well. Let's call them that. But um, no, I I really do love the love the coaching side of it more so. Like I suppose there's strength and conditioning coach. There's obviously strength and there's conditioning, but there's the coaching is is the real thing as well, where you figure out the the bunch of players that you have their strengths and really try and get the most out of them. That's what you're there to do. You're there to assist them, to try and get the most out of the bunch of players you have. You know. Yeah, so there's a fair amount of marrying the technical knowledge with the man management and the, and the human development, as it were. Let's talk about some of the um, uh, technical side of things of uh, strength and conditioning. You obviously have played hurling through your youth. How would you reflect on how things have changed in the sport in, in, in the sense of strength and conditioning? Has it been a, a huge leap forward in the information available, the knowledge that is generally around each county? Uh, or do you think it's been kind of gradual, not too different from uh, from the, the past that you recognise? Yeah, no, definitely. I suppose when I was playing back in the day, um, you'd probably trained on a Tuesday and a Thursday and you had a game at the weekend and I suppose realistically now at the higher level of club hurling and inter-county hurling now it, it, it's, a, it's a lifestyle choice really there's so much you have to do outside of being on the pitch obviously your gym sessions your strength sessions your recovery sessions uh, looking after your diet all the all the things that go with it you know so I suppose it's a lifestyle choice but um, yeah I suppose that's, that's why the people do it they love it so much you know the players they really do um, and it's just it's brilliant to be involved. I suppose at the moment with a brilliant bunch of players that that take everything seriously. We have we, we use apps to track stuff. I suppose that wasn't around in my day. You track your sleep, you track your 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 food, and all that stuff that goes with that. And I suppose to realise your true potential is is what what the players are there for. You know, professional in all but name. Would you say the sport has become? 
Yeah, yeah, certainly. I, I suppose inter-county level and, and even the higher end club stuff. Yeah, I would say that indeed. Um, yeah, it, it's it's definitely a lifestyle. You, you you live your life around the GAA, really. Mm. Um, it, but I suppose if you have a love for it and it's what you want to do, and uh, you make sacrifices as as players, as coaches. Um, I know my wife Claire here at home is very understanding in terms of I spend a lot of time on the road and, and involved as well. And yeah, you really have to invest in it, I suppose, to get the best out of it, you know. Groups must be, in, and you touched on it there, they must be actually universally committed to the game and to the team or the club or the county on the basis that, like you say, it is now a lifestyle choice, more of a calling maybe, and you get less kind of varying levels of application. You get a kind of total commitment then. Yeah, I suppose. Look at that, luckily enough to be involved with, with with the higher end, the elite end, I suppose, of inter county hurling, um, in, in in Division One, you know, and and in Leinster Championship, and certainly it's it, it's it's an all in, um, situation. Um, I suppose the the year has changed. Obviously, it's a condensed championship this year and last year. Um, and it's 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 certainly you know when you when you're in, you're all in. I suppose, yeah, definitely the commitment levels are are there. And and look, I suppose it. People make choices all the time. It's something that you have to love and have to want to do, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's apparent even from the remove that I think the GAA fan has in the first place. Let's move the conversation on. Because you've got this interest and knowledge about the idea of strength and conditioning, and I think some people can forget or, or miss what S&C can be about uh, but a large part of say conditioning is is uh, nutrition and, and a lot of S&C is about uh, lifestyle and activity you're dealing and working with young people but at the very elite level of, of say S&C for instance but how would you observe um, younger people generally how they interact with the sense and the idea of activity? Yeah, I suppose, look, I'd have a keen interest in, in, in youth athletic development. I suppose, of course, it's a balance. Look, again, away from sport, you try to, as a parent, I suppose, first, you have to kind of try and um, bring up your kids in the best possible way from, mm-hmm. from, from a nutritional point of view, from an activity point of view, probably going the opposite way, I suppose, in terms of you, you, you read a lot of stuff in, you know, in the papers and, and on the subject about, you know, poor diets with amongst kids and obesity and all that kind of stuff and too much screen time, etc., but I suppose, look at as parents, we have responsibility maybe to to push that on, you know, in terms of I suppose, monkey see, monkey do, you know, yeah. um, encourage the kids to get outside. Um, we spoke uh, previously before maybe we went on air about some stuff in terms of the supplement boom and that, and again, time and a place for that, and of course it's it's a supplement, so you get most of your nutrition nutrition tea, and you get most of your um your protein and stuff from a balanced diet. I would say, and then a supplement outside of that is if it's necessary at a time and a place. But I suppose, unfortunately for me, I, I see too much maybe young people in, in crowds that matches and stuff and, and not active at the match and, and cans of Monster and protein marriage bars and stuff like that. I suppose that's not the, not the place or the time, you know. It's There's some fierce marketing behind a lot of this stuff. So I imagine it can be very hard uh, to get any message that overcomes that uh, towards uh, young people. But in, in, in that respect, nothing's guaranteed and 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 we'll see where that goes in the future it's kind of hard to know now but as you say yeah. uh, a lot of the information coming out about sedentary behavior or nutrition it's a mixed picture certainly not all good um now as you say you're involved with a, a great group at the moment uh, who are hurling under joe fortune in the west meath uh, senior hurling setup. Let's have a chat about what it's like uh, to to work in in the intercounty setup. Um, 
your brief as a strength and conditioning coach there, uh, do you plot out the season from, from, from uh, you know, before the new year? Um, do you have to build up, you know, a, a certain level before the guys get onto the pitch? And where are you guys at the moment in terms of uh, managing strength and conditioning at this stage in the season? And for those listening in, we're sort of uh, mm. just after the league, uh, just at the start of the championship uh, campaign. Yeah, look, I suppose uh, I'm very fortunate to be involved with the Westmead Senior Hurling team, first and foremost. Um, I met Joe Fortune a couple of years back when, when he was involved in the back room with a team I was involved with in Wexford. And he invited me to come up and, and to get involved at Senior Inter-County 11 and much appreciated of it. Yeah, I suppose in terms of the overall year, yeah, you spend a lot of time on the phone, a lot of time on, on the new... Uh, the new Zoom meetings, the new way forward, I suppose, planning and plotting your, your season. I suppose, look, I'm involved with a very good management team as well. And we sit down together and we sit down before and after training and go through the next the next plan for the next week. But over the season, I suppose, yeah, we would have we would have trained hard um early in the year. A little bit different, maybe, I suppose, at Westmead. We we were kind of nearly aiming to for championship type uh, fitness early in January because we were up in Division 1 yeah. and our first goal was to stay in Division 1 I suppose so we had to get get I suppose a little bit ahead of the, the rest maybe in terms of our fitness we set out the plans I suppose and at the end of the day the players who are actually a great bunch of players um, to work with they do, they do the most of the hard work um, I suppose on the field getting ready um, as regards where we are now um, yeah look we're in the, in, in the we're two games into a very condensed championship where you have, you have five games in six weeks um, from a strength and conditioning point of view, I suppose our main focus now is is maintenance, uh, topping up on our strength, topping up on our power, but really injury prevention, maintenance, getting injured players back on the field. Um, as I said, as as we talked, there's there's four weeks left, I think, in in the in the championship to, to up to our last game of the round robin of the the Lancer Championship. So mm. what we focus on doing is having having our best fifteen available to start the games and as fit as possible now after a lot of work you know, in the pre-season and in the early part of the league as well. You touched on the fact that it, it, it there's kind of a strategy to programming uh, for a, a county. And, and as you say, in, in a way, the, the best strategy for Westmeath was to get to the peak fitness and strength uh, uh, levels through the, the league campaign. Uh, and also, that might be a space and a place where uh, other counties might not necessarily be doing uh, the same thing. It ultimately panned out that uh, you secured Division One status, so that must be satisfying from a strategic perspective uh, to know that 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 plan essentially paid off. Yeah, look, I suppose the plans don't always work out. Is the first thing we're, we're not all perfect in, in in that, but look, we would have been very um, definite in our first goal of the year to stay in Division One, um, having having been promoted last year from Division Two, and we, we had some good performances along the way as well, which which is which is satisfying. Obviously, playing against the top the top teams as well, so. Um, yeah, look at when a plan comes off, I suppose, and when, when you're successful, it's very good. You, you have to take that as well with, with the other stuff as well. So, yeah, look, we're in the middle of the championship now and this is, the, this is the second plan, our second goal for the year. So we have to just keep, keep going and keep driving on with that. I can tell you're reticent to give yourself a pat on the back because uh, you're obviously so much committed into what's going on at the moment. And what's going on at the moment, um, uh, finally, Richie, is the game against Galway tomorrow evening. What are the Galway hurlers going to bring to the game against uh, your Westmeath side? Obviously, um, they, they bring a massive standard, but specifically, uh, what's the challenge of taking on Henry Shefflin's Galway? 
Yeah, well, sure. Look, Galway, we played them, played them twice this year already, and the Walsh Cup and in the league. Look, they're going to bring huge physicality to the park. They're probably in, in many, many uh, hurling men's uh, position, I suppose. They're probably up in, in the top three, maybe top four in the country with ambitions of, of winning in All-Ireland. Yeah, they're going to bring huge intensity Saturday, and, and I suppose our job is to meet that head on. Look, at the very fate and the lads to do that, I suppose. We're, we're in good shape. The effort and the attitude, I suppose, of our lads has never wilted, so... Yeah, we'll meet it head on on Saturday. Well, for the game on Saturday, wish you the very best and uh, hopefully the Westmeath players can kind of just hit their performance levels uh, to to a satisfying degree. Um, and best of luck, of course, for the rest of uh, the Provincial Championship. Richie, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us on Health and Fitness this evening. No problem. Thank you, David. Yeah, Richie Flynn there. Best of luck to the Westmeath hurlers. Throw in is six o'clock tomorrow evening against Galway. You get full live commentary here on Midlands 103. Jerry Russell uh, will be on hand to talk you and call you through uh, what will hopefully be a good evening for the Westmeath hurlers, uh, although Galway, a serious opposition in that respect. Uh, we are heading over to Offaly next after we take a break. Uh, we're going to be walking from darkness into light. Health and Fitness with David Hollywoods in association with the Hearing Consultancy. Carrying out free hearing tests in Clara, Tillamore, Kinnegad and in our latest clinic at Mullingar Dental Clinic, Martins Lane, Mullingar. Thehearingconsultancy.ie Welcome back to Health and Fitness. Next, we're going to be looking at Darkness into Light. Remember, you can get this show on podcast if you've only caught a bit of it, a glimpse of it, or indeed you know you're not going to be around next Friday. You can get it on Spotify. Uh, I recently discovered. Uh, you can get it uh, where you typically get your apps and you can get it on midlands103.com where we podcast uh, just about everything that happens in this radio station. Uh, Jenny Bergen is the chair of Eden Derry's Darkness Into Light. She's going to be talking to us about an event that's come to mean so much to so many people. It is obviously something that affects everyone I know to some degree, shape or form or another, our mental health and uh, those who've been tragically affected by suicide. Uh, it's It's one of those far-reaching issues in this country. Uh, bear in mind that uh, what we're talking about here could uh, affect how you're feeling in terms of your own mental health. To be information on that as uh, our reporter Chloe Farrell speaks to Jenny Bergen. Let's start off with a darkness into light definition. Darkness into light is uh, for Theatre House. It is their annual um, flagship fundraiser. And it's organised almost entirely by amazing volunteers throughout Ireland and across the world. And every year it grows from strength to strength. And what's the importance of having an event like this? Well, I think in Ireland and across the world, you know, mental health is a huge problem. Not only suicide, there's a stigma attached to suicide. There always has been a stigma attached to suicide but mental health as well, it's not discussed, it's taboo and this needs to change. You know, people need to know it's okay not to be okay. And the this year's event, it's in Edenderry. It has gone on there for a couple of years. How was it selected that it would happen in Edenderry? Well, at the time, uh, the, the very first walk took place in the Phoenix Park in uh, 2009 with 400 people meeting up at a quarter past four to do a 5k charity walk and since then it has just it's getting it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger every year now there are um, there are nearly 50 registered walks in Ireland and there are also there's 64 actually registered walks in Ireland and um, there are 28 
worldwide walks as well in America and Canada, South Africa. Um, and it's just getting bigger and bigger and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. I think the magic of darkness into light when we were up there at the Edenderry Walk and it's, it's going out, you know that all over Ireland, I know the different time zones in the world, but all over Ireland, there are hundreds and thousands of people walking at that exact same time. And as I said earlier on, to me, darkness into light is not, it's not a, it's not a movement. It's a feeling. It's the most powerful feeling knowing, you know, you're just bringing that sense of unity, that sense of support and hope to people that have been affected by suicide and people struggling with, with mental health and suicide. And with that feeling, just for the large numbers that are doing the walk, everyone's there for a similar reason, but what would be the main kind of personal benefits that a person might get while carrying this out? It's it's a sense of, to me, I suppose, being involved in darkness into light for so long, it's, it's a sense of community. We all know somebody, unfortunately, we all know somebody that has died by suicide or we all know a family that have been bereaved by suicide. And and to me, it's a sense of unity, knowing that there are so many people across the world, or across Ireland and across the world, world doing it. And it just ignites hope in so many people. And I think the power of hope, we all need to have hope in every situation in life. And, and, and we have physically seen it. We have seen, unfortunately, we have seen families come to take part in the walk that have been bereaved by suicide. And it's it's just a very, very powerful feeling knowing what we're doing that's that's helping in some way. It's helping people in some way and it's you know, we all want to we, we, we need to be surrounded by positive people and, and it's a very positive feeling up there at quarter past four in the morning. And to me, anybody that is going to get out of their bed for a quarter pa- for a walk taking place at a quarter past four, they're doing it for a reason. And and you know, to me that's the powerful feeling. Uh, with uh, over the whole the whole darkness into light walk and just for anyone tuning in so you're listening to health and fitness on midlands 103 if you're affected by anything you hear this evening you can free phone the hse's mental health line on 1800 111 888 that number again is 1800 111 888 if you're affected by anything we discussed this evening so just to move on a little bit from darkness into light itself for doing a stroll, whether it be early morning or the length of five kilometres or just any kind of a walk. What do you feel the mental and physical benefits could be to this rather than kind of strenuous exercise? Well, for anybody that, you know, gets up and decides to go out for a walk, you know, you're doing it for yourself. I think it's, you know, apart from the health aspect of it, uh, the physical health aspect of going for a walk, the mental um, effect of going for a walk, that you're doing something for yourself and the fresh air and, you know, all of your surroundings, it's its a very positive thing. And, um, and you know, the walk, again, it's at a quarter past four in the morning, but you've people probably coming to do that walk that are not putting on their trainers every evening and going for walks. They're coming to be part of this movement. And for people who don't necessarily, as you said, put on their running shoes every day, is there kind of a, a nice social aspect with darkness into light as well? Yeah, because the walk goes out at a quarter past four, but we would have people starting to congregate maybe from, from three o'clock onwards. And I think it's just 
the you know it's dark there's candles lit um you know we we come after the walk there is we invite participants to come back into the hall afterwards and we have a cup of tea and we'd find a lot of people will come back and congregate so yeah there is a social aspect to it uh, of people coming together and to me everybody that comes to do the walk they're doing it for a reason you know they're doing it for their own reason and we always you know when we congregate afterwards maybe the meeting the following week we always hope that even if only one person took something positive from it then it's a job well done for us and with that with people congregating and if people are taking something from it do you find that each year the same people are getting involved well, we're getting involved. We have a committee here in Eden Jerry. We've there are def- there's four of us definitely have been on the committee for the last nine years, and then we have other people coming on. But we have just a huge sense of community within the town in the run up to Darkness and Delight. We get fantastic support from all of the businesses and clubs. You know, we we're the committee, but we are we're depending on volunteers and stewards and and people helping us set up the hall and and you know pack everything up and. Um, it, it's just it's just like a community event. It's just this lovely, cosy community event. And, you know, it's for a fantastic cause. It's for, you know, it's their, it's Pieta's flagship fundraiser every year. They're, um, they only, you know, they're depending on 80% of to run Pieta House is, is coming from the likes of Darkness Into Light and, and other charity events that we do. Um, but it's the fact that it's, there's all their services are free of charge. They're, fully qualified um, staff and then there's a free phone number you know I can read you the figures over the over the years of um, of the amount of people that they have helped and supported and as I said if if one person walks away from any of the darkness into light venues or walks across Ireland uh, tomorrow morning it's a job well done for everybody. What made you decide to get involved with darkness into light? I had been aware of Darkness Into Light. Before before we took Darkness Into Light to Eden Jerry, I had been aware of Pieta House. When my daughter was in college, actually, she did some work experience in Pieta, and that's how I learned about the service. So before dar- before Darkness Into Light came to Eden Jerry, I had done a few fundraisers over the years for Pieta, and I was invited to a meeting um, with a representative from Pieta, and came home as chairperson and I've been here for nine years and it has been the most fulfilling job I've ever done. It's been fantastic. You just mentioned there about it being fulfilling and I suppose just to expand on it, how do you feel getting to be involved with the cause? It's fantastic because I, I've seen the change, I've seen the improvement since we became involved, you know, since Eden Jerry came on board um, nine years ago. I've seen it increasing every year and increasing every year. Um, again, having the, the complete support of of the town and of our locality, um, the same you you will see the same people coming and doing the walk every year. But there's always new people coming. You know, we hear the good stories, and unfortunately, we hear the bad stories. And um, knowing you're doing something that can help, even even bringing awareness of the services Pieta involve, and you know, having their phone number at hand, and we have a Facebook page that we keep updated all year long. So we're constantly putting up the number and I'm doing smaller things around town. Every September we plant a tree of hope. Um, and again, it's significant that, you know, for darkness and delight takes place once a year, but Pieta is open, you know, 
365 days and we like to just to to keep people aware of the services that they that they provide so for anyone that's looking to get involved with Eden Dairy Darkness into Light what should they do is registration still open Oh yeah, registration will be open, you know, it will be definitely open until the walk takes place. I think I think it really does go kind of in in on Saturday and even in until Sunday. So it's the website is www.darknessintolight.ie and by clicking on that you can find your venue, pick the venue you want to walk in. You know, you can register for Eden Dairy and walk in Ackle if you want, but just it's very important to be registered. And then um Pieta's phone number is 1850 247 247 and that's a 24-hour free phone crisis helpline number or text the word HELP to 51444. Perfect and if you would just like to explain uh, Pieta House's manifesto. This is Pieta, I'm just going to read it out. It's It's basically what Pieta House is all about and the whole darkness into light movement. So this is called the manifesto. We wake up in the darkness in our thousands around the world. We rise up to challenge stigma, to banish self-harm, to fight suicide. We keep in our hearts those feeling trapped in the darkest night, those haunted by sadness, those with an empty chair. We are armed with the courage to listen, to talk, to care. We walk shoulder to shoulder until we drive out guilt and shame, until we stop the breaking of human spirit and we start connecting in conversation. We walk together to meet the silence with our voices towards the promise of an ever new dawn, embracing the world filled with light. We walk on with unshaken purpose with undivided strength, fueled by compassion. With every step, we commit to acceptance, we commit to hope, we commit to life. We like to make a big thing about participation on health and fitness, and I think that those words really speak to that value. That was Jenny Bergen, the Chair of Edenderry, Darkness into Light, speaking with our reporter, Chloe Farrell. That is your lot for health and fitness this Friday evening. We'll be back next week. Health and Fitness with David Hollywoods with the Hearing Consultancy. Carrying out free hearing tests in Clara, Tullamore, Kinnegad and in our latest clinic at Mullingar Dental Clinic, Martins Lane, Mullingar. Thehearingconsultancy.ie Midlands 104.